This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Dallas Good. Long live the Saints. to episode 94 of the See Here podcast. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne and over in Brantford is my partner, Tim. Howdy. Unfortunately, our other compadre, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, was not feeling well, so he couldn't join us for this show. Hope you're feeling better, Sticky. But we've just finished an interview. More of a conversation, really. Less interview, more just roundtable conversation. It's fantastic. The fireside chat. The fireside chat with author, one-time director. I hope that she'll change her mind. I'd love to see her make another film. Tamara Saviano. She's gone and written a book, and along with her husband, Paul Whitfield, has directed a film about the country musician and songwriter Guy Clark called Without Getting Killed or Caught. The book and the film are two very different beasts. The book is more focused on Guy Clark with other things in it, obviously, but the film is really more about Guy Clark and his relationship with his wife, Susanna, and their combined relationship with another Texas legendary singer-songwriter, Towns Van Zant. We just had a marvellous time talking with Tamara, and Tim and I really hope that you enjoy what's about to come up. So what we'll do is we're going to play the trailer for you now, and then we'll launch straight into our conversation with Tamara Saviano about the music of Guy Clark and Americana music in general. You're listening to See Here, episode 94. We'll be back after the conversation to talk about what's happening in episode 95. I'm proud to present the ASCAP Lifetime Achievement Award to Guy Clark for his outstanding accomplishments as a songwriter, recording artist, and musical mentor in the field of country music. Texans really love their heroes, and Guy is a true blue Texas hero. He was a powerful figure with an enormous presence. I'm pretty sure they'll say he's one of the greatest American songwriters that ever lived. Why didn't Guy Clark become a big star? 
I'm not sure they yet knew how to market a poet of Guy's caliber. Guy didn't care about pleasing the record label. He was passionate about the songs and he was hell-bent on doing things his way. It bombed. And I was lost, <laughs> looking for something. I'm Susanna Clark. I live in Nashville with my husband Guy and our best friend, Towns Van Zandt. It was a mythical love story. You had to be there to, <laughs> to get it. Guy and I were married, but Towns and I were soulmates. He knew what was most important to Susanna. Towns Van Zandt died on January 1st, 1997. Susanna surrendered something that night. She went to bed and didn't get up. I quit and started over. And all I gotta do is do it. Nobody says you can. I continued to spiral down as Guy's star kept rising. Here I am, a folk singer. <laughs> he knew what he wanted to be. That's clarity. You know, I'm just cursed with artistic integrity. Lord, what a beautiful woman. His songs were literature. It just, it couldn't go on. This might be it. I never was a country singer. I'm still not a country singer. I just write songs and play them. I'm Guy Clark. Pack up all your dishes. Make note of all good wishes. And say goodbye to the landlord for me. Some bitches always bored me. Welcome back to episode 94 of the See Here podcast. And Tim and I are very, very excited to have with us from Texas director, author, Tamara Saviano, the director or co-director of the new Guy Clark documentary Without Getting Killed or Caught. Welcome to See Here, Tamara. I'm so happy to be with you, Morris and Tim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being had. Congratulations on the release of Without Getting Killed or Caught and also congratulations for the award that you only just received in the last month. Was it the, the Austin Film Circle Award for Best Documentary, was it? Yeah, it was the Austin Film Critics Association and it was Best Austin Film of of 2021. Fantastic. So, Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. It's been great. We kicked off at South by Southwest in 2021 and we won the Lewis Black Lone Star Award and then we ended 2021 with winning the Austin Film Critics Award. So I, I feel like the state of Texas loves Guy and loves our film and it's been really, set, you know, satisfying for us. That's magnificent. So well deserved. This film seems to be a follow-on from your book of a few years ago about Guy with the same title without getting killed or caught. At the start of the book, you talk about how you first fell in love with Guy's music as a teenager. Then you came to meet him as the editor of Country Music Magazine. And you talk about the first time you got drunk with him and the first time you worked with him as a publicist <laughs> for his Workbench Songs album. Then there's a lot more at the, the last third of the book about your ongoing friendship and working relationship with Guy. So for those who may not have read the book, can you talk a little bit about your earliest meetings and friendship with Guy and also I guess as a sub part to that question is were you ever concerned about whether you were going to be completely objective about your work with Guy? Yes and I'm probably not objective at all. Um <laughs> 
uh, you know, I'll just put that out there. You know, when I was working with Texas A&M University Press, who released the book, they are an academic press and they expect to have objective journalism. And I felt like I could do that for Guy's early life up until the time I met him, mm-hmm. because I didn't know him then. And I could just take this story where the facts led me. But it was that final third part of the book, which is really memoir about my relationship with Guy and what happened during those years since I met him. And so that's how we handled that. We just made the first two thirds of the book straight biography and the last third of the book memoir. It's an unusual format, but Texas A&M was on board for it. And it made me feel more comfortable in that I wasn't trying to hide the fact that I was close to Guy. And then the film, you know, is a little different because, you know, my book is like 450 pages. We couldn't make a film that detailed, but we decided to focus on the relationship between Guy and Susanna and Towns. I didn't know them during those years, really. So I brought in the experts that did, Steve Earle and Rodney Crowell and Vince Gill and the other people that were around during that time. And of course, I have Guy and Susanna's voice. Our goal was to stay out of the way and let all of those people tell the story as it happened. One thing that I absolutely loved about how your film was made was the fact that you did give space to the important players in Guy and Susanna and Towns's life. They all had voice because there are so many documentaries out there that just seem to be fan lip service. And I mean, I understand to an extent that that's got to be done, but it looked like you said right from the outset, the only people I want to hear from are those people who were involved in their life and actually knew something about them. So as you say, you know, Rodney Crowell is a big part of the film. Yeah. And we took it in stages, like the story we were telling, the story arc, it was like, okay, who was there when this was happening? Let's go to those people. Rodney and Steve were there in the early years. And then Vince Gill came in at some point in the 70s. And then Verlin Thompson traveled the world with Guy for the last 25 years of his life. And Barry Poss, who was the founder of Sugar Hill Records gave Guy his first independent record deal, which is when Guy Clark, as we know him, really started to blossom. So we were really careful about who we had. I didn't want a bunch of academics or journalists or fans or people that didn't really know Guy to right. say, oh, yeah, oh yeah, he's great. He's great. Well, one um, thing I really love is that a while ago, I got a hold of the Heartworn Highways DVD and that footage of them sitting in the kitchen. Man, I was over the moon the first time I saw that. And what I'm wondering is is there any more of that film footage that's out there? a company, and now I'm going to forget their name, but you can look it up. There was a company... I think in Seattle, a record company that does kind of reissues and catalog. And they reissued that film a couple of years ago with all right. the footage as extras. And I think that's it. Okay, that's what I just got a hold of. That's what I was talking about. I wondered if there was any more because it's uh, like if there is, I can't get enough of it because yeah. that's that was just amazing to see Steve like so young, like a baby face Steve Earl sitting there and, and everybody yeah. just happy. I mean, they're recording themselves, obviously, but it's just there's no manager 
managers. There's no labels. There's no, it's just everybody having a good old hoot, tying one on and sitting in the kitchen and just having a jam. And I love that. I mean, having that foot, we, you know, license some of that footage to include in our film and, and having right. that footage really does illustrate what those salons were like at Guy and mm-hmm. Susanna's house. Had you watched before you started making the film, had you watched Be Here to Love Me, the Tans Van Zandt documentary? And did you sort of say, right, well, that's not the approach I want to take? How much did that read into your working on the film? Yeah, I mean, I watched it and I liked it. It was about towns. And I think what I wanted to do in our film is make sure that people know that Guy is nothing like towns. Although they were best friends, they were very different people and very different in their approaches to life. Guy respected towns and they were best friends. And he thought towns was the greatest American songwriter that ever lived. But as people, they were very different. Guy is so stoic and pragmatic. Susanna and Towns were more mystical and even Towns' songs, you know, he would dream up some of his songs and Guy was much more deliberate. And also, I didn't know Towns. So everything I learned about Towns for our film, the things that I included in our film about Towns all came from Guy and Susanna and Rodney and those people. I didn't take anything from Margaret Brown's film because that wasn't the story I was telling. I was telling the story of Towns in his relationship with Guy and Susanna. And the rest of Towns' life weren't germane to our story. When you were talking about Guy being deliberate, specifically, there's that huge example of him nailing himself up in the room and writing that song. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> yes. And he, he had had enough of Susanna and Towns and went and nailed himself in the room. And, right. and I, you know, Guy told me that story from his perspective and Susanna told me that story from her perspective. It was interesting. I interviewed Guy and Susanna. I spent a lot of time at their house and Guy was always downstairs in his workbench, you know, where his workroom, where his famous workbench was. And Susanna was always upstairs. So I'd be running back and forth up and down the stairs. I'd interview Guy and then I'd say, I'm going to go get Susanna's point of view on this. And then I'd run upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I interview Susanna, you know. Uh, it was kind of fun. I look back on those days very fondly. He said, she said. <laughs> yeah, I would, and I would do that. I would say, Susanna, Guy just told me this. And then I'd go back downstairs and say, Guy, Susanna just told me this. <laughs> they corroborated each other most of the time. Sometimes right. one of them would say, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Or it, right. Guy might say, oh, Susanna likes to romanticize things. But for the most part, they were telling the same stories with the same memory of what happened. I want to just ask a couple of things about your own background, Tamara. So you've documented that you became a big fan of Guy's music at 14 after hearing Old Number One. What were you listening to before that? What was your musical background before Guy Clark became that lightning strike? I was a child of the 70s and I was really drawn to kind of that California folk rock. I love the Eagles and Carol Kang and James Taylor and the singer-songwriters that were really popular on the radio because that's what was fed to me. And I still love that stuff. But I never really understood, I think, that they were songwriters. That never really clicked in my brain until I heard Guy. And so hearing all number one and seeing the liner notes, Words and Music by Guy Clark, that's when I was like, oh, wow, yeah, of course. Of course there's somebody writing these songs. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a songwriter? And then I just started digging into songwriters from there. And I've always just been a big fan of singer-songwriters. I mean, I love other stuff, too. I love country music. You know, I mean, like, honky-tonk country music. I love pop music. I love jazz and blues and 
40s music and big band. And I mean, I love lots of stuff. But if I'm going to turn on music, my first impulse is to go for the singer songwriters. Do me a favor. Can you please direct the documentary on Richard Thompson? Uh, no, <laughs> because, because I'm never directing a documentary again. Oh, no, we got, we got to go into why that is. I'd play the Red River Valley And he'd sit in the kitchen and cry And run his fingers through seventy years of living And wonder, Lord, as ever well I drill gone dry the way I got into Guy Clark was kind of funny. It was through my dad because of albums that my dad had and recordings. It was originally like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And yes. they, had, they had done one of Guy's songs that I'd heard. And then I didn't even know of Guy Clark, but then I was introduced to uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. And then yeah. Jerry, Jerry Jeff did Desperados, and that was, I thought that was his song initially. And then I found out, like you did, uh, you know, looking through, the, you know, like written by Guy Clark. And I was like, who is this guy? And then next thing you know, like, there you go. But that was the song for me that really was that kind of earworm, Desperados. Like, it's just so haunting. Mm -hmm. We had a local band here in Melbourne called Uncle Bill, which were around maybe about 20, 25 years ago or something like that. They just played the pubs, and a big part of their act was doing bluegrass versions of pop songs. But there were some straight-out country songs that they just couldn't not put in the mix, and one of those was The Cape. And I thought, where the hell did this song been all my life? You know, just such a clever song. Eight years old with a flounce-sack cape tied all around his neck. He climbed up on the garage, he's figuring what the heck. Screwed his courage up so tight that the whole thing come unwound. He got a running start and bless his heart, he headed for the ground. Well, he's one of those who knows that life is just a leap of faith. Spread your arms and hold your breath and always trust your cape. Yeah, the cape, it's a great song. That And Sky wrote that with Susanna. And oh my gosh, the third songwriter just went right out of my head. But anyway, to me, it's a very Susanna song. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because she was just much more, I don't know what word I'm looking for. She like, was amused. She was amused. Yeah, and she was, she was amused, but she was, I think, a lot of times more lighthearted than Guy. And that song feels more lighthearted to me. That's interesting because there seems to be like a range of songs across Guy's discography which seem to be there's the serious stuff like Randall Knife but then there's also right. the lightheartedness of homegrown tomatoes oh sorry tomatoes true true there ain't nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes up in the morning out in the garden get you ripe but don't get a hard one plant them in the spring Eat them in the summer All winter without them's a culinary bummer I forget all about the sweating and digging Every time I go out and pick me a pig Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What'll I be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy And that's true love, homegrown tomatoes 
this seems like he could do both. But this is a question, actually, it's only because you brought this up now. I was going to save this to later, but one thing that I got very much out of the book, also to the film to an extent in a different way, but one thing I definitely got out of the book was just how much of a collaborative person Guy was. I mean, you, we always sort of hear that in the rock world, people want to keep things for themselves and they're only going to sort of collaborate with someone if there's a record deal in it or there's money to be made. I know I'm overgeneralizing here, but it seems like Guy's whole raison d'etre and maybe that whole Texan singer-songwriter scene was all about sharing music and saying, hey, what do you got? And it, it, there's, there's always these moments in your book where Guy is saying to some new singer-songwriter, okay, show me what you got. Hmm, okay, yeah, let's work with that. That was just one of the big takeaways I got from this book. And so there's so many great Guy Clark songs, but they're Guy Clark collaborations because to him it was the art that was the thing it wasn't about making millions of dollars although there's this one great quote that you say where he says yeah shit I'd love to write the next Garth Brooks million selling hit but I can't do it because <laughs> I've got artistic integrity or something like that <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah he did love to collaborate he really did he wanted to hear other people's songs as much as he wanted to share his the biggest thing that I got from your film that really gets me and it always has stumped you know like stumped me and made me kind of scratch my head have you ever seen the film Barton Fink oh yes because I am the biggest Coen Brothers fan on okay. the face of the okay. planet so well, yes you know, I <laughs> when, when he goes to Hollywood for the first time and Michael Ernest says I want you to write something with that Barton Fink feeling and it's like what the hell does that mean like you know like <laughs> this guy's just starting out but to me that really sums up a lot of, of what goes on with your film because I mean it's like you know when they call these people artists like Guy Clark as an artist but it's like well who defines that term like the labels the producers the studio or the actual artist Guy recognized himself for what he did but I think it was definitively different from what other people would define as the artist and it wasn't like he was like arguing with them like battering like, like screw you you don't know what an artist is but I think he said his own terms and I think what happened was that he was actually the guy who kind of crossed the line for a lot of people who said, look, it's okay to set your own terms. It's okay to be who you are. And it's the same way, you know, with Willie and Waylon with the outlaw country where, you know, it was kind of like, look, man, like it's okay to put your hair up in pigtails and grow your hair long and, you know, do what you, you know, do what we're doing like just to be us. And I think that guy really set the standard for that. And he really gave a lot of guys like Rodney and Steve and all these guys the confidence to say screw the label definitions we just got to be true to ourselves and you know you 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 keep your own compass point and you you know you're never going to go wrong. Yeah I think that's true and you know Guy it took him you know he did albums on major labels RCA and Warner Brothers he wanted to be successful and he wanted to have radio hits but he wanted to have radio hits with his own music you know that's where the rub is is you know the radio hit song business is very different from writing songs as art. And that's okay. I love a hooky pop song as much as the next person. It's not what Guy did. It just wasn't his thing. And that's okay. And I think the nice thing about people like Guy or, you know, anybody that decides to go down their own path is that it does show other artists that they can do their art the way they want to. And Guy set the tone for me for both the book and the film. You know, I can't tell 
tell you how many people tried to dissuade me from certain pieces in the film. And I was just like, no, this is what we're doing. And I don't care if anybody likes it. I don't care if everybody hates it. I don't care if nobody ever sees it. Because if I'm going to put my time and energy into this, it's going to be the film I want to make. And the rest of you, I don't care. I don't care if everybody hates this film if I like it. I'm making this film for me. And I did. I made the exact film I want to make. I would not change one thing in my film, no matter what anybody says. And I mean, I argued with my husband, who's my co-director and our editor about certain things. And I was just like, I'm sorry, this is staying in, even if you both don't like it. Even now, you know, I've watched this film a gazillion times and I would not change a thing. I made the exact film I wanted to make. No matter what happens from here, I'm so happy I did that. Good on you. Good on you. That's wonderful. And Guy was like that with his songs. He was like, this is a great song. I love this song. I'm not saying my movie's great. I'm saying I made the film. No, 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 I I completely understand. But I mean, that's just the thing is that if you really respect an artist and you really respect what they do, then, you know, you have to approach them on their terms. They're not making McDonald's hamburgers for Christ's sakes. I mean, they're just, you know, they're doing their own, they're doing their own thing. I mean, the way they're trying to be as honest and true to themselves as they possibly can. You look at guys like, for example, like John Prine. Prine was recognized by Chris Christopherson and then he had the guys that he really admired, like Steve Goodman. Was there anybody that Guy had his mentors? Like, was there anyone that Guy kind of looked up to the same way that people looked up to Guy? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly Towns and also Mance Lipscomb, Lead Belly. And, oh, for uh, sure. I can hear Lead uh, Belly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't now off the top of my head on the spot. I can't really think of any, but I think I, I listed some in the book. You know, there were mm-hmm. people, you know, guys in Houston that Guy saw. Oh, he loved the Chad Mitchell trio when John Denver was part of it. Guy was born in 1941 and in the you know early 60s when he was in Houston, that was kind of the folk music era. And that's what Guy was really into. He was really into folk music. There was a TV show called The Hootenanny at the time. And Guy watched that. All those folkies, Bob Dylan, for sure. Guy would, when Bob Dylan came out, Guy would listen to his albums and dissect them with friends, you know. So Dylan was a huge influence on Guy. And Chris Christopherson. Guy came to Nashville largely because Chris had been here in Nashville. I think there's a difference between Guy and a lot of other musicians though in the sense that a lot of people are are deemed poets but I think the guy actually was you know like with his music I think that like you say with his folk background and everything to me it's more little I don't know how to explain it but it's almost like he wrote novellas he was able to kind of summarize so much it's so little, like like with laser precision, you know, he was almost surgical about it, the way that he could just cast such a wide swath of imagery with such a limited range of words. And, and it was just like, that's what really caught me about Guy Clark. Yeah, and he was, I think surgical is a good term because every word mattered and he would go over those lines and go over those lines and go over those lines to make sure the exact right word was there. And one of the anecdotes that I liked to tell that kind of illustrates that is when we were doing the tribute album to Guy, Roseanne Cash was recording Better Days, which Guy wrote for the 1984 album of the same name. And he had since changed the lyrics. And he was so concerned about Roseanne singing the new lyrics that he kept faxing.
faxing them to me. Like, you know, he had a fax machine long after everybody else got rid of theirs. And he would be like, I'm going to fax you these lyrics to make sure Roseanne sings the right line. And I'm like, she's got it. She's got it. You know, but he was so concerned that that the two lines he changed not be recorded the old way. She's standing at the window Her face to the glass As far as she can see The time has come to pass As far as she can see The sky is all ablaze And this looks like the first of better days It's almost like a mother bird letting her baby birds out of the nest, you know, and he wants to make sure that they all fly. Like, I I, I get it. It's so funny how he's so, you know, like I said, he holds on to them just, you know, like they're Fabergé eggs. And it's just like, okay, this is exactly the way it's got to be. Yeah, I get it. The fact that you said that you showed early on in the film and in the book that Guy had an artistic background, that he was a painter as well, Mm -hmm. made complete sense to me when you look at some of these songs. So, I mean, obviously, he has a range of different song topics. He writes a lot about family, but one thing that I love are the songs where he writes about objects but uses them to tell a wider truth or a wider story so we were talking earlier on about the cape which is you know he takes a simple object and it's a metaphor for someone finding one's bravery you know randall randall knife the knife stands as a metaphor for his whole relationship with his father picasso's mandolin to my ears is a metaphor for taking chances with the unfamiliar breaking rules be creative your way and my favorite picture of you it's superficially a song about a photograph but it's really a song about his whole love of Susanna you know these he takes these objects to tell a wider story so did he ever talk with you about let me give you a lesson Tamara about how to use everyday objects to tell wider stories did he ever talk with you about his songwriting process in general not specifically about objects but he wanted to tell stories that people could relate to and that people would feel an you know, an emotion about not necessarily even the same emotion that Guy felt, but something that's universal enough that would move people. And, you know, as Steve Earle says in the film, and I think, Tim, you mentioned this earlier, you know, Guy's songs could have been short stories. They do stand on their own with or without music, I think. So he was just trying to tell the stories with the best words, the most succinct words and the most impactful words. And Guy loved language and he loved words. And I mean, Often I would find him just reading the dictionary or reading the thesaurus at his house, just looking at words. It's kind of interesting because I'm, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but Robert Earl Keane told me the other day that he has been memorizing Shakespeare soliloquies. And it's not about memorizing them, but it's about looking at the language and the rhythm of the language and how right. interesting the word choice was. I mean, that's why Shakespeare is Shakespeare, right? That's why he's famous to this day. I think Guy was like that in a different medium and with, and with modern language. You know, I think there are just people that really get wrapped up into words. Um, I'm one of them. I call them word nerds. And yes. Guy was certainly <laughs> a word nerd. And one of the reasons I loved him and I could relate to him is he was a word nerd. 
something I was sort of thinking about is that with your book and with the film and through this discussion, you're sort of referring a lot more to Guy as a lyricist. And like a song is a whole package. Where did Guy stand amongst his peers in terms of respect for melodies? Because I did like the people who worshipped him say, wow, Guy, you've been a real... that." no one comes up with a melody like you or was the melody sort of secondary to him? Was he as finicky about getting the right melody as he was for the words that he put down on paper? You know, that's a great question. And I don't think he was as finicky. And he always laughed about how he ripped off his own melodies, like Let It Roll (laughs) and Randall Knife are the same melody. So I think, you know, the melody was definitely important to him because it's, like you said, it's such an important part of a song. But I think he was really trying to get the words down and have a melody that went with the words that supported the words that's me kind of opining about the way i see it if guy were here he might argue with me he talks so much about the words that it always came across to me that that was the most important part and then he laughed about how he ripped off the same melodies for different songs from himself my father had a randall knife my mother gave it to him and he went off to World War II to save us all from ruin. Now, if you've ever held a Randall knife, you know my father well. If a better blade was ever made, it was probably forged in hell. I don't remember if this is in the film or in the book, but there's a moment, I think, where Rodney Crowell said that art is in the process, not in the end result. Uh, yep. And I'm presuming that you know, that was definitely something how Guy felt because he spent so much time getting, as you say, the words right and finding the melody to fit those words. But you've also said in both mediums that he was pretty dissatisfied with the RCA albums and the Warner Brothers and the Asylum album. And once he sort of got to go to Sugar Hill Records and was basically said, you do things your way then he was happy. But those albums, regardless of what they might mean to other people, but for him, they were unsatisfactory, but they're the end result. So did he sort of actually really believe that the art was purely in the process and not in the end result if he wasn't happy with how putting drums on a record might have sounded or not quite the right musicians? Was the art in the song itself or the art in what people heard on the record? Well, see, that's where, you know, I think I can go back and support my argument about how words were more important to Guy because what he didn't like about those records was the production. He loved the song. Songs are fine. It was the production. That's what he really struggled with until he realized that he didn't have to do things in a way that, you know, what all those five albums have in common on RCA and Warner Brothers is that people were trying to make him a radio star. And so the production supporting what radio needed or wanted, he wasn't happy with the production. It was not the songs that were the problem. It was them as Guy as the artiste. (laughs) You know, this is in the book and the film how there were two albums that didn't come out at all because Guy was like, no, I'm going to change my name and leave town if, you know there's no way and it was because he could not stand the production and I heard that first record that didn't come out the one that that was before old number one and it's terrible oh terrible. really yes and I was just shocked by how terrible wow. it was. and the and the other one that didn't come out Warner Brothers you know I tried to find it in their vault and they who knows where it's kind of lost mm. forever I've looked for that album for years mm. but the first one was actually terrible and I agree with Guy that it's a good thing it didn't come out. So yeah, I think that 
that was just about the stuff that happens in the studio, which can really make or break uh, songs. Absolutely. You can have a great song and have a terrible production, and that's one, it. You know? One thing I wanted to ask, and it wasn't just about the art, but also the relationship. The situation with Towns and Susanna and Guy I can't think of another situation in my lifetime where people would be in that kind of trifecta um, that would work. And not just on a personal level, but Guy was influenced by Susanna and Towns was influenced by Susanna. Like, would you say that it was all kind of mutual influence? Oh, yeah, I definitely would say that. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, Guy and Susanna and Towns kind of came up. They were young people in that whole free love era. Right. Um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. They had different views about how people love each other or whatever. And yeah, my husband and I talked about that a lot. There could not be a third person person in our marriage because our marriage would not survive it <laughs> um, from either of our perspectives. I think um, a lot of people can say <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, you know, for Guy, I think he was really dedicated to his work and Susanna needed a lot of attention. And I think that Towns took some of the pressure off of Guy. He didn't have to be the charming husband all the time. So I think it worked in his favor, even if I'm, I think there was probably some jealousy sometime. And also, I don't think Guy was a very good husband. I don't know. I just wouldn't consider Guy a good husband, the way he lived his life. And that's why Susanna left him when she made her money on Come From the Heart. Right. You know, she packed up and left him for six years. They were separated. You know, it worked for them. And who's to judge that? Not me, you know? No, no, of course, of course. So I remember that song, hearing that in the 80s, Come From the Heart. And it's one I've always been fond of. I had no idea until your film that that was written by Susanna. The sentiment, I mean, it's, it's a great melody, but that chorus dance like nobody's watching sing yeah like you've never been hurt it's a great life philosophy if guy's songs are short novellas that song by Susanna is it's a life philosophy I, I just I love it it's it's direct and it's honest oh, you got to sing, sing like you don't need the money love, love like you'll never get hurt you got to dance, dance like no And Susanna was good at writing radio hits, you know, and I think it kind of drove Guy and Towns crazy because she was having such financial success where they weren't. As Steve Earle said, these little simple pop songs, but Susanna's songs were great. I love her songs. And um, I think she is equally as good a songwriter. She just did a different kind of thing. As we've gone on and reiterated about how Guy's songs are like little mini novellas, any of his music, was any of it ever used as in soundtracks or film? Because I could totally, totally see, like, for example, the famous one, Paris, Texas. I could have seen guys, some of guys' music in Paris, Texas or something of that ilk. Has anything ever been done? Did anyone ever approach him about film? Well, I don't know anybody that anybody approached him about composing, but some of his songs have been used, like L.A. Freeway is in the film Boyhood, the Richard Linklater film Boyhood. Right. And there was some TV show, and I didn't watch it, so I can't remember the name of it, but there was a TV series that used one of his songs. But, you know, he never went after that, and he never really had anybody going after that. I hope that in the future that 
there will be somebody. We've guys family has a new publishing administrator. And so I hope that in the future, we will hear more Guy Clark songs in film and television. But for Guy, it wasn't really an important thing to him. What he wanted no. to do was write the songs, record the songs and play the songs for the people. That's what he cared right. about. No, because it's funny because it's like now whenever I watch one of my favorite films of all time, The Wild Bunch, I, in my head, I hear Desperados waiting for a train. Yeah. And it's yeah. just it's just perfect for that. You know, it's just these guys at the end of their line, they've outgrown their time and, and that's it. You know, I mean, it's just perfect. He co-wrote a whole suite of songs, Sis Draper and the, all the Sis Draper series with Sean Camp. And at one point in time, Sean was talking about, you know, doing like musical theater with the stories from that song and the characters from that those songs. And Guy was kind of like half-hearted about it. He was like, well, Sean, yeah, if you want to do that. But, you know, Guy didn't want to spend time on anything else that would take away from his songwriting. Wow. Kick your shoes off in the corner, mama tucking babies all up snug. Sis Draper's coming over, we all gone cut a rug. When you see that lantern swinging yonder, coming up the holler road, them dogs will get to barking all to time all up with a rope. One thing that I found interesting early on in the book was you make mention of the song Step Inside This House, which um, La Lovett, who is a huge songwriting hero to me, I absolutely adore him. He not only made that the title track of his album of covers for his songwriting heroes, was this the first song that guy had written? Yeah. Why did he never record that? That song perfectly encapsulates so many themes that he went on to do. He never recorded it because he never thought it was a finished song. And when Ah. when Lyle recorded it, he loves Lyle's recording and he was happy that he did it. But he was like, Lyle, that song is not finished, you know. But it's a really interesting story because Guy wrote that song, you know, sometime in the early 60s in Houston. And it was called Step Inside My House. And it was Step Inside My House, Babe. And then by the time Lyle recorded, it was Step Inside This House Girl. And it had been, because it had not been recorded, it had been handed down singer to singer in Houston. Somebody heard Guy play it and then they played it and then someone else played it and Lyle heard it from Eric Taylor, heard Eric Taylor playing it. So it's kind of interesting that there really wasn't a recording of it. However, I will say that during my research, I unearthed a recording of Guy singing that song from that time period and it's a really great recording. He was on a radio show and if you go to our website withoutgettingkildercaught.com and sign up for our newsletter, you can download the song and it's beautiful rendition of Guy singing Step Inside That's My cool. House. No, not to say that I would I would ever assume what Guy Clark would think, but you would figure he would look back the blues. I mean, uh, so much of the blues were unfinished songs or parts, parts of songs or lines that people carried on, and it just got transmitted as organically mutated or changed. You wonder whether or not he would have considered, like, there's no finish. I mean, it, it just goes where it goes. Well, I think he came around to that. You know, Lyle recorded and released that in 1998. So I think by the time Guy died and he sat next to Lyle singing that song all the time on the songwriter tour with Lyle and John Hyatt and Joe Ely and Guy. So by the time Guy did end up coming around to it and being happy that Lyle recorded it, but it never right. dawned Guy to record it. So step inside my house, babe, I'll sing for you a song And I'll tell you about where I've been Shouldn't take too long 
I show you all the things that I own, my treasures you might say. It couldn't be more than ten dollars worth. They brighten up my day. You mentioned in the book, and I know I'm going a lot to the book. We've got a film to talk about, but um, that's, that's okay. You mentioned that his anthology was called Craftsman, and you also say that he hated that. Oh, mind you, I think that's also mentioned in the film. Where it is. He, he, he says he absolutely hated that title, Craftsman. But I sort of noticed stylistically, you as a filmmaker show this long shot of Guy's workbench, and that's the thing because we hadn't sort of mentioned in the discussion here yet that guy did love working with his hands and he built guitars and he worked on boats and he did love working with his hands so he was a craftsman in that sense and you sort of go to show this is what a craftsman does but why did he hate the connotation of the album being called Craftsman? Did that have a negative connotation for him? It did. It did. And and Guy and I discussed this a lot because I don't think being a poet and being a craftsman are mutually exclusive. But Guy wanted to be thought of maybe as a craftsman for his guitar building, but as a poet for his songwriting. And Rodney and I have talked about this a lot too, and, and other songwriters who understand Guy's disdain for the word because because it might sound like just anybody can do this, you know, but which is not true. If you practice your craft and you become a craftsman or a craftsperson, it means that you're an expert. You know, it means that you know what you're doing. But the term just really bothered Guy. He wanted to be known as a poet. And it's interesting to me, the Academy of Country Music gave Guy the Poets Award a few years before he died. And Guy loved that award more than anything else because it was called the Poets Award. Wow. He thought of what he did as a songwriter, as poetry, and that's how he wanted people to look at it. Right. I could see it both ways. For example, like as a craftsman with wood, you can replicate the same thing over and over and over, for example, making a wooden horse. Whereas sure. with poetry, it's organic and it just comes out of somewhere and it's never the same thing again and again and again. It's its own beast. I can see where, he, you know, his kind of distaste for uh, the term like that. That's a great point, Tim, that, you know, I never even thought about it that way, that a craftsman could be somebody that makes ores and the same or over and over again. Right, and right. Yeah, it's very different from songwriting. I watched a documentary a few years ago about the making of Steinway pianos and it takes like a year to make a Steinway piano. You've got all these different departments. It's a, it's a contrast between the manufacturer, how, they, how all these people are hand building these classic pianos. But then you get to see like a pianist who goes throughout the film trying out these different pianos and every one of them is different. Different. Maybe for most people who are music fans but are not pianists or maybe just basic pianists might not notice a difference. But someone who's trained up to the highest level would say, no, this piano, which is made exactly using the same process and by the same people, is different to that one. And I would have thought like with guys' guitars, every guitar would have its own personality. You might not notice it if you haven't been playing for years and years, but some of those people would notice a difference. And that's why I don't sort of like to think that, you know, being a craftsman means that you're like, it's not a factory line, at least not in my head. It, it sounds like they, everyone will have its own personality. And that's why I still sort of thought, wow, Guy thinks that being called a craftsman, I mean, you can be called many things, but he sort of seemed to have such a negative reaction. That's why I just sort of found that so surprising. And that's a great point too, Morris. So, you know, I guess the word has different meanings to different people. And I love that Steinway story. I got to look for that documentary. I'll point it your way. 
way. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's a that's a really good analogy to use. So yeah, it's interesting. The term definitely rubbed him the wrong way. As Tim said to you earlier on, we've been doing these shows for quite a few years. and We've seen quite a lot of documentaries. And one thing that we see in a lot of music documentaries is when someone's telling a story, there's usually some reenactment and it's often done with animation or some level of drawings. But I think that the drawings and the bit of animation that you had in your film is possibly some of the best that I've ever seen in any film. And it's not because it's flashy or anything like that. It's quite the opposite. It's these beautiful drawings, which look like they might have come out of a comic or something like maybe drawn by Robert Crumb. I mean, not Crumb styled, but they're just... They're fun, these drawings. So I just wanted to ask you, who did these drawings and did you pick the people who did them because you knew of that work or did they, did you say, I have a vision, this is how I want you to do it? No, this is actually all ties back to Guy. So when Guy, Susanna and Towns lived together in the early 70s, they hung out with this visual artist named Mel Chin. And Mel is now a world famous artist, but back then he was a student at Vanderbilt University and he used to draw these drawings just like in our film about Guy and Susanna and Towns. And there's a couple of them in my book. So when we were working on the film and I realized we had these important scenes and we had no visuals to go with it, I called Mel Chin and I said, hey, I know that you're now this world-renowned artist, but I'm wondering if you can go back to what you used to do in the 70s and make these animations for us to match those drawings that you did of Guy, Susanna and Towns back in the 70s. And so I wrote out this script from from those scenes and sent them to Mel and that's what he came up with and it was perfect. He knew Guy very well and Guy, of course, gave me those Mel Chin drawings to use in my book. Guy used to show those drawings to a lot of people that came to visit him because, of course, they were drawn by a Vanderbilt student and now Guy had them and they were drawn by this now world-famous artist. So Wow. Yeah, so Mel Chin was really generous with us and kind and willing to do that and it just is another absolute close tie to Guy Clark. It wasn't mm-hmm. just an illustrator that didn't know Guy. This was one of Guy's good friends. One bit that I found absolutely perfect was that moment in the film where we're hearing from Susanna via Sissy Spacek, and we've got to talk about her in a moment. But she says, I just couldn't take being with him anymore. Uh, I had to leave him. And then there's that Mel Chin drawing. It's sort of like two parts. There's Susanna walking out of the house. And then we see her flying away like she's finally free, almost Mary Poppins-like in a way. Such a beautiful way to express how Susanna actually must have felt at that point in time. Yeah, and keep in mind that Mel knew Guy Susanna and Towns very well. He hung out with them a lot during those years. So I knew that he would know the spirit of what was actually happening way more than I did. So when he turned in uh, that stuff, Paul and I were just like, he came, and it was so interesting, that just the, the he came to our house on Christmas Day and he was sick, but he lives in North Carolina and he happened to be in Nashville and um, he was sick, came to the house to give us everything. And the poor guy ended up in the hospital after that with pneumonia. You oh, know? No. But yeah, we when we looked at the drawings, when he came to our kitchen table and showed them to us, we were just like, oh, my God, this is just brilliant. It's just perfect. Um, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, in some films we see it and it's a bit generic, but Everything that you show there was within the spirit of the film. And I love hearing that he actually knew 
Towns and Susanna and Guy. So it goes on with the whole theme of you only speaking for the film with musicians who knew them very, very well and had worked with them and could tell an honest story as opposed to you know, fans or, or academics, right. as you said earlier on. Right. So this, this keeps on with, with the spirit of the rest of the film. That's just fantastic. A lot of documentaries, there's just, I don't know how any other way to say it, there's just a lot of ass-kissing. You just people again and again and again just saying how great these people were. Oh, he was fantastic, he's fantastic, he's fantastic. Well, that's why you're watching the documentary documentary because you had an interest in this person already that's a large part of it but i think right. like morris was saying there's an honesty in all of the people that knew guy and Susanna, and they just lay it out as it is you know like i mean with rodney and steve and all these guys they're not fawning they're just saying we all played together we all knew each other and we recognized what this guy could do and we loved it but there's no fawning over over guy clark well i wish i was in austin In the chili parlor bar, drinking mad dog margaritas and not caring where you are. Here I sit in Dublin, just rolling cigarettes. The other big aspect of the film is that you've got Sissy Spacek to read through Susanna's diaries, which Guy had left for you. So take these, like after Susanna passed away, so do with these whatever you need to. Was there any other choice other than Sissy Spacek to read these diaries? Because she does such a wonderful job. Yeah, I don't think so. And I think Susanna was making some moves from the great beyond. And um, because one day at breakfast, I just yelled out loud, Sissy Spacek is Susanna. And Paul was looking at me and going, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I just know it. I just know it to my core that Sissy Spacek needs to be Susanna. Yeah. Now, of course, I did not know Sissy Spacek. So how I was going to make this happen, I did not know. But I knew that she had to be Susanna. And then I started doing some research and I found out that Sissy and Susanna grew up less than 100 miles apart in Texas. And then I read further and I was reading Sissy's biography and I read further. And after she won her Oscar for Coal Miner's Daughter, she came to Nashville and recorded an album. Rodney Crowell produced that album. Uh. So then I called Rodney and I'm like, Rodney, you know, and he and he's like, not only did I produce that album, there's a Susanna Clark song on that album. <laughs> so Sissy's Basic recorded one album in her career, and there is a Susanna Clark song on her album. Yeah, another one of those things where, okay, well, she fits, you know, this is not just some random person coming in. Right, this is a person right. that has a connection. So Rodney introduced me to Sissy. They're very good friends to my great relief. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Sissy, you know, she said that she'd love to see our rough cut when we were ready. And, you know, she wasn't going to sign on to something she didn't like, of course. So when we had a rough cut, we sent it over to her manager and her manager showed it to Sissy. And then Sissy signed on and a few weeks later, we were in the studio recording her and I spent a day with her before we went in the studio just to read through the script and talk about Susanna. And, and she came into the studio. We booked the studio for two days and she did the whole film in four hours. 
she's just uh, such a pro and she just became Susanna came in the studio and just became Susanna Clark right before our eyes and just brought everything to life. It was just wonderful. So no, I can't imagine anybody other than Sissy Spacek in that role. So when you showed her the rough cut, was it yourself doing Susanna's lines so she could get an idea of the placement? Well, it wasn't me because I'm terrible at that. So we hired another actor. Catherine Willis is her name. And and actually, Catherine did a wonderful job. And if Sissy would have said no, we would have kept Catherine because she used to, you know, she came in and she just did a great job. But Catherine didn't just didn't have the connection to the story that Sissy did. So it, it was meant to be Sissy's. And Catherine knew when Catherine came in, she was just lovely. She came in to do it and she knew that she was putting down a temporary vocal that we were, you know, hoping to get Sissy. But then after she did it, I, I just said, look, if this doesn't work out with Sissy, we're keeping yours. So right. we got the chance to work with two wonderful actors. We spoke earlier on at the start of this discussion about how you'd been won those couple of awards and once again, congratulations. Congratulations, well deserved. How has the film been received in, in other parts? I mean, has this film gone outside of the Texas circle? Because, I mean, obviously, Guy's revered, and you've written this great story surrounding the trinity of Guy, Susanna, and Towns, but in, say, non country circles. Have people watched that and said, who had never heard of any of those musicians and found it touching? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know who's watched the film, quite frankly, but what we did, I mean, it was. COVID really changed everything for us. But we, after I um, had meetings with seven distributors and all of their offers were worse than any bad record contract I ever saw, I was like, okay, I'm going to be Guy Clark and say, no way am I doing this. So we decided to do a DIY release. What we did was after South by Southwest in 2021, where we made our debut, we did six ticketed virtual screenings where you had to buy a ticket and show up at a certain time. And we supported those with um, conversations with people after like I have an interview with Rodney Crowell and I did an interview with Steve Earle and and then after that we did a theater run which started out strong and then the Delta variant kind of slowed that down there was a couple in Australia I can't remember where oh I think it was in Perth but mostly it was in the US and we did a couple other festivals but 2021 was just still really a weird year with COVID so at the end of 2021 uh, in November 6 which was Guy's 80th birthday we went on demand streaming at our website and anybody in the world can watch the film there anytime they want. So they just have to go to withoutgettingkilledorcaught.com and buy a ticket. You can buy a one-day pass or a three-day pass and there's extras. And for now, that's the only way people can see the film. We'll definitely be putting a link in the show notes so people can uh, search that out. Thank you. Right. And maybe maybe someday uh, a distributor will decide that it's worth paying us for the film. But if that day doesn't come, then this will remain the only way because I, first of all, I have investors and I take that fiduciary responsibility seriously. And second of all, just out of the principle of the thing, I'm not giving my film away, period. Right, right. And again, I don't care who sees it or doesn't see it. I, I made the film for me. So I didn't make it for the world. I made it for me. If the world likes it, great. So I don't really care who sees it. I know that's probably not really the way that a filmmaker is supposed to feel, but that's the way I feel. Why are you not going to make any more films? Is it because Guy was personal or the filmmaking 
process left you burned out? What happened? Yeah, well, both. I think, you know, Guy, the story, I never really set out to make that film. It just sort of happened. The filmmaking process, first of all, is really, really grueling. And it's super, super expensive. And it takes you away from doing anything else in your life that might make you some money. So it's really good for young people that don't care about being poor. I'm 61 years old and I have to think about retirement. You know, I'm glad that we made this film, but I don't think there's another subject that excites me enough that would make me put myself through that again. Now, I will say if someone came to me and said, we want you to make a film about something that was interesting to me and here is $5 million, then I might do it. (laughs) But I'm not going to go out and, you know, our film costs $650,000 to make. $200,000 of that was the music licensing. And I'm not going to go out and try to raise that kind of money again because it just, it's too much, you know, it's too much work. Well, congratulations on the final release because yeah, Tim and I are both fans and yeah, we're Thank singing you. the praises. Uh, so I presume though that you'll be continuing writing books? Possibly. I have a book about Americana music that's probably like 70% finished and I just haven't felt like going back to it. And I really, after putting out the film, putting out the guy film, I kind of need a break. So this year I'm I'm working on some special projects, I'm working with Robert Earl Keane and I'm working with Bruce Robison and The Next Waltz and I'm coaching some young artists and that's what I'm going to do this year and then we'll see how I feel next year about finishing a book or starting another. Um, I was going to bo- write a book about Rodney and I've got a lot of interview stuff with Rodney in the can but I just I haven't worked on it at all so we'll see. That's just sort of going to tick something off in my head here that probably should have thought to ask earlier but given the fact that you're you said you're working on a book on Americana and that's one thing that is very clear in both the book and the film is that once Guy stopped being labelled as a country artist and sort of got in at the grand level when things started being labelled as Americana. He seemed to be a whole lot more, uh, when I say successful, I'm talking about in terms of public recognition. So once he joined the Sugar Hill label. So is it possible to distinguish in words the difference between country or Americana? Does Americana a wider umbrella that includes country music? I I always sort of thought of it that way, but is there a distinction in your mind? Yeah. I mean, it is a wide umbrella and it does include country music. And I think the the reason the whole Americana genre came to happen is that there wasn't a place for people like Guy and Lyle Lovett and Nancy Griffith and Emmy Lou Harris and uh, Steve Earle on country radio anymore. Country radio, in, you know, played some of those artists early and then veered off into another direction. And there just was not a radio format to support those artists anymore. Right. So Gavin, a radio trade magazine, just started a new chart called it Americana and then built a business around it and it worked. So it's more like a business decision rather than a musical stylistic difference. Yep. It was started as where can these artists have a home? So radio will play them. So Americana stations started popping up. Some radio stations, whether they were AAA stations or country stations or whatever, you know, started by having like little blocks of time that they would call Americana. You know, it might be Sunday morning, might be, you know, whatever time. And then and slowly radio stations that were dedicated to Americana started cropping up. But the, the Americana came to be purely from a business point of view. Well, what's funny to me is that, you know, when you look at like in, in the in late 70s and the 80s, where there were music festivals, you saw a lot more um, quote unquote Americana artists playing folk festivals instead right. of playing country festivals. Right, exactly.
exactly. And it seemed like the country festivals are more like Hank Jr. and more of kind of like the shit kicker guys. And, yeah, uh, I mean, and it was all about what got on the radio, right? Yeah, because we had Mariposa up here in Ontario. We had a couple of more of the renowned folk festivals. And a lot of people from the States that were, like I say, like more than Americana, people like Emmy Lou and that would come up to Canada and play our folk festivals. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. They still do. I mean, there's yeah, so yeah. many great folk festivals, and that's where you'll find those artists. All right. Uh, do you have any final questions, Tim? No, I think we've nailed it all. We don't have to take any more of this lady's precious time. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure to be here with both of you. Thank oh, you so much, the Tamara. Pleasure's all um, ours. Yeah, thank you for delivering this film into the world, and we can't praise this enough. It's a r- truly great documentary, and yeah, we'll be putting the link up in the show notes. Uh, without getting killed or caught.com, we highly recommend that people go out there and search out the film. If you're a Guy Clark fan, then it goes without saying you should be watching this, but I think if you just want to see a story about how people work together, about community, and a lot of this film is about the music community and about oh, the, sol- the selflessness that musicians had. I mean, I, really, you can't imagine. As I said earlier, I can't imagine too many rock musicians doing what Guy did on an ongoing basis. Yeah, the occasional collaboration, fine, but he was just so giving. And it seems like all these other people who you speak to, you know, your Vince Gills and Rodney Krause and the like, just so giving of themselves. So uh, if you want to see even that as a story, even if the music isn't necessarily your thing, you'll still find much to love. What Morris is trying to say is that, you know, if you're a Guy Clark fan, watch this film. And if you watch this film, you will be a Guy Clark fan. Right. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. And and I also like to tell people that I really think this is a story about friendship Mm -hmm. and, you know, friendship with good music, because the relationship between the three of them um, is really something, you know, compelling. All right. Well, thanks once again, Tamara. So super happy to have had you on the show. Okay, so Tim and I will now go to a break and we'll be talking about what will be coming up next month on episode. 95 of See Here Podcast. Stuff that works, stuff that holds up, the kind of stuff you don't hang on the wall, stuff that's real, stuff you feel, the kind of stuff you And we're back. Our huge thanks to Tamara Saviano for being so gracious with her time and her conversation. Tamara, the offer is open for you to come down to Australia and we can continue the conversation and I can show you about our local Americana or Australiana scene. Absolutely delight. I learned a lot of things. Absolutely. I loved it. Uh, Thank you again for your time and we really, really appreciate you sitting down and uh, sitting around the fire and just having a good old yak about Guy Clark. It was wonderful. Yep, it certainly was. All right, so let's talk about episode 95 of See Here Podcast. It'll be March of 2022. And we're going back to the roundtable type of chat. We're not going to be getting a director on this time, although the film is quite recent, so maybe we should have. But no, this is just going to be a round-the-table sort of chat. And it's a very, very recent film, only released last year. Not an easy thing during these times of covid but the film, which is getting a lot of traction, a lot of people are fans of I this. I know, I know. So 
some summer is sticky. <laughs> the summer, the, the, the summer of Sam. No, neither of those things. It's the summer of soul or when the revolution could not be televised. Directed by Questlove, drummer of the roots and DJ in his own right. So this is a documentary about the hitherto forgotten Harlem Culture Festival taking place in 1969 and the lineup of artists who take place. It's amazing. How did this uh, festival ever get forgotten? How do you get a film about Sly and the Family Stone and Nina Simone and Stevie Wonder and no one remembers that it ever existed? This is amazing. Yeah. Look, I haven't actually gotten around to watching this yet. I'm exceptionally looking forward to this. And uh, so as well as Tim, myself, and hopefully Sticky being on board for this, we're uh, going to be joined by a great local film writer from Melbourne, a lovely lady, a great friend, Emma Westwood. Now, she's known normally as a writer of uh, horror films. She's currently working on a book. She's curating a book with different authors about Bride of Frankenstein, and every author is going to be writing a chapter, giving a different perspective about that. Uh, she recently released a book about the uh, incredible film from um, uh, John Frankenstein. Seconds. She's written some really great books. She wrote a book on the fly. She knows and loves her film, but she told me, for someone who's a horror film writer, she told me that Summer of Soul was her favorite film of last year. So I said, right, well, I've been waiting for an excuse to get you on the show. So she'll be joining us for uh, the roundtable chat for next month. So really looking forward to uh, welcoming her to the See Here family. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. Instagram, just look up See Here. That's S-L-E-H-E-A-R. And the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. And I think that's pretty much covered it. So um, thanks, Tim, for joining me on this is a fantastic conversation that we had today. Have we said that enough? Oh, it's a pleasure every single time. All right. So uh, until next month, look after each other, look after your loved ones, be nice to each other. And we'll be back for episode 95 for the Summer of Soul. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. A thousand words in the blink of an eye The camera loves you and so do I Click My favorite picture of you Is the one where you stare and straight into the lens It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 